Welcome, welcome. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris. If you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. We use our Bibles every week. If you didn't bring a Bible, we have some place on the ends of the rows. Go ahead and grab that one or nudge your neighbor to pass it down to you. Uh, we'll be in Acts chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home with you. Uh, Acts chapter 2. It's the fifth book in the New Testament, um, right after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which start about two-thirds of the way through. Um, so yeah, when you get to Acts, meet me in chapter 2, okay? Well, welcome. Um, here at Sedaris, we have been working through a sermon series uh, that, where we've been walking through the book of Acts. Walking through the book of Acts. Um, Acts is uh, the account that we have in the New Testament that goes through the first three decades of the Jesus movement. It goes through the first three decades of the Jesus movement. It follows the disciples of Jesus, the 12 disciples, um, who get a special fancy title in the book of Acts called Apostles, kind of an upgrade, I suppose, for them. And it actually um, starts after Jesus has died and resurrected. Jesus uh, actually spends 40 days with them after that, um, a sort of remedial education because they didn't get everything the first three years. So Jesus is like, hey, I'm going to teach you guys for the next 40 days before ascending to heaven, which isn't ent entirely their fault. Jesus even said, hey, I've been speaking figuratively for these three years. So if you didn't understand it, that's what this summer school, I guess, is for, for these guys. And at the end of summer school, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's the city where they were, in Judea and Samaria, that's kind of the surrounding countryside, and to the ends of the world, to the nations. And so really the witnesses, um, that's courtroom language, right? Witness. And so what Jesus was saying is that they will testify about their experience of him. That's what witnesses do. They testify about their experiences. And through their um, testifying, through their witnessing in the, first, uh, in the first churches, we see the Jesus movement move from about 100 people who went through this summer school of Jesus to taking over the entire Western world in a short few centuries. And it's our hope that um, the Jesus movement would grow here in Seattle as well. And so what we're doing is we're looking at their witness, the way that they witnessed, the way that they testified about who Jesus was and what Jesus did and what they experienced to inform our witness. So that's what we're doing each and every week here at Sedaris. We're just looking at a different aspect of their witness to the first century in the early church, the way the first churches witnessed about Jesus in the hopes that maybe we can learn something about how we could do it, okay? But if, if you're not a Christian, this is also a great series for you too. This is not just a series for Christians who are learning how to talk about Jesus. Really, Sedaris is a place for anybody who's considering Jesus, whether you think that he's the rescuer of humanity or if you just think he's kind of a fictitious character at this point. Because what we're doing and looking at their witness, we're actually finding out a lot about who Jesus is. And so if you're here today and you say, you know, I don't know if I'm sold on this whole Jesus thing, that's okay. I hope that you can start to get some handles about uh, who Jesus was, what he was hoping to do, and maybe even leave here with some new questions this morning that you can consider. Maybe even leave here with a new friend that you can consider those questions with. That's what Sedaris is all about, asking questions and uh, having friends that can help us with them and asking them even together. So this is for you too, okay? All right, so today in Acts chapter 2, we're going to encounter something beautiful. 
we're gonna encounter a really beautiful part of witness. It's so beautiful, we're gonna see it, we're gonna be attracted to it. It's, it's beautiful not just to people who are inside uh, the church, but beautiful to people who are outside the church as well. It's not just um, beautiful to people who would call Sedaris home, but it's beautiful to people who uh, still haven't made up their mind about who Jesus is. It's incredibly attractive, incredibly attractive. But here's the deal. Um, don't worry, I'll talk about it in just one second here. Uh, we're gonna see it together. But here's the deal. Often, we may not experience this beautiful thing. Often, we may long for it. We may see it as attractive. But it, if we're honest with ourselves, we may have to admit that, you know what? This beautiful thing is on the other side of a locked door. Maybe we've caught glimpses of it in the past. Maybe we're, we're experiencing it a little bit right now. But if we're honest, we, we'd love to experience it more and more and more. And our passage today provides us that key to open the door that we may experience this beautiful thing. Okay, so that's what we're going to do today. And so the, the flow that we're going to do, um, if you're a note taker and love to put things in order, first we're going to look at what that beautiful thing is. We're going to unpack it. We're going to unpack it together and as it's out, uh, laid out in the passage. And then we're going to ask, well, what's fueling this beautiful thing? What's generating it? What's producing it? What's creating it? What's actually the drive behind it? We're going to unpack what is driving it, what's creating it. And then thirdly, we're going to really examine how we might participate with it ourselves. Because often it's not enough to just um, see and understand a beautiful thing. We have to know how we might operate within it so that we may participate. Okay, so that's the flow that we're doing today. And we are going to behold this beautiful thing in the book of Acts. All right, you got it? All right, so let's do it. Um, uh, so in chapter 2, where we're at, we're going to pick it up in verse 42. Let me set the scene for you. Um, in Acts 42, what we have uh, is Luke has just described the, first, the event of the first day of the church called Pentecost. Um, Pentecost is a feast that um, all the Jews that were scattered in all of the, Roman, the nations of the Roman Empire that spoke all these different languages, they came to Jerusalem once a year for a weekly feast or a week-long feast of Pentecost. And uh, in that feast, in the middle of that feast, God pours out his spirit on 100 or so followers, and these followers speak in all their languages about God and about Jesus. Uh, they didn't necessarily have to. It's likely that all these people who came in spoke the common language of Hebrew, but uh, God did this so that he could really take a city which was there to celebrate one thing, Pentecost, and focus, refocus everybody's direction on another thing, the Jesus movement, okay? And, and with everybody's focus on the Jesus movement, Peter and the apostles preach sermons that first day, and three thousand people are added to their numbers that first day is what Luke tells us. Three thousand people, so that's like a factor of 30 in the first day. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. If, I mean, it would have been great to buy that stock, right? Um, so we have 3,100 people. Luke has just described the event of Pentecost, and in verse 42, he transitions to describe the resulting state that, that uh, pursued right after that, all right? And that's where we're gonna pick it up today. So let's just read it together and let's see this beautiful thing. Verse 42. 
And they, that is the 3,000 new people who have faith in Jesus, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, this is a really beautiful picture, isn't it? This is a beautiful picture of a vibrant community. Here we have 3,000 people that are in awe of the greatness of God. Uh, They're considering all their possessions as in common with everybody else. People are selling their things and then redistributing wealth among them for the poor that had need. It's really beautiful that these people from probably a lot of diverse backgrounds have come together and they're forming this incredibly vibrant community and everybody's sacrificing it and pulling towards one direction. Um, We started our fellowship groups up this past week. Um, If you're not in a fellowship group, uh, they're still open. You can always join a fellowship group. Uh, You probably don't have to catch up much. much. You just missed one week. Um, In fact, we have packets over here that outline them. Uh, If I forget to talk about it later, that's where they are. You may want to investigate what a fellowship group is after this sermon. So the packets are over there that go go over each one of our seven ones that meet in the city here. Um, But we started our fellowship groups up this week, and uh, we had 14 people in in ours that met in our home. And uh, at the beginning of every fellowship quarter, I love to ask the same question. What do you hope to experience over the next quarter, uh, over the next few months with this group. And we go around the circle and everybody answers it. And like I said, we had 14 people and 13 people answered in, in, in this way. I want to experience vibrant community. And the 14th was a newborn, so. <laughs> but I want to experience this, uh, I want to experience a community, deep relationships that are meaningful, that are impactful, and this is the answer every time. This is the answer every time, and I love coming together and being united in that desire as a group, as a fellowship group. Why do we call them fellowship groups? This passage. We're going to unpack what that means, because deep down, all of us long for this. All of us really do long for this, okay? And, and so uh, what we're gonna do, because we all want this, we all want to love, we all want to be loved. We all want to be known, we all want to know people. We all want to sacrifice even, and we all want to see someone else right next to us sacrificing for the same cause. You see, all of us wanna be part of this vibrant, beautiful community that we see created in the book of Acts. And what I'm going to say is that we even have too small of a vision of what that community could be sometimes. And so we're going to go through it and we're going to unpack what this actually looked like together, okay? All right, so the first thing, uh, we're going to go through this passage. I want you to see in verse 42, it says, and they devoted themselves, devoted themselves. 
We say someone is devoted to something when uh, that thing takes ultimate priority in their lives, right? So we'll say something along the lines of, that person is, is really devoted to their work right now. That person's really devoted to their family right now. That person's really devoted to their school right now. Um, some people aren't devoted to much in life, but some people are, right? They have things that are taking huge priority in their life. Uh, that person is really devoted to season two of Stranger Things right now, right? Great season. Not as good as season one, but anyways. I mean, how can you fight with that originality of season one, right guys? Anyways, okay, getting off track. Devoted. They were devoted to these four things. There's a list of four things in verse 42, and the next five verses actually outline and flesh out these four things. The first one is, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. Um, We actually, a month ago, uh, preached a sermon about why preaching is so important and, and why we should really devote ourselves to it. If you weren't here, that was a sermon we gave on May 13th. Um, go back, listen to it. If you wouldn't say, you know, I'm not really devoted to, to preaching. Um, this early church was, and because it was a huge witness about who, uh, a huge witness to Jesus, and we, we preached on that about a month ago. So go back, give that one a listen to. Um, but the second thing here is they devoted themselves to the fellowship. To the fellowship. Now, this is a vague word the fellowship, isn't it? We, we use it. Um, sometimes it can even be Christian lingo that only Christians use, and people outside are like, I don't know what that means, um, but I'm glad that you have a fellowship group, right? Um, what, what does the fellowship actually mean? Well, Luke gives us some handles to hold on to here, starting in verse 44. He says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. Now, this is pretty strange. Okay, this is pretty strange that this concept of a lot of people coming in and sharing all of their possessions is happening here. But what's interesting when we see it in the Greek is that this word, the fellowship. Oh, poor girl. The, The word... The fellowship comes from the, it uses the same Greek root as in common. Okay, so it says they devoted themselves to the fellowship. And then in verse 44, it says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. Both come from the Greek root of koina. And this, this notion of koina is the, the base uh, root meaning of it is communal. Communal. That's what this word means at its base. It means communal. So they devoted themselves, you could even translate it, to the commune. And so they had everything communal. Commune, communal. This is what the base uh, fundamental meaning of fellowship really meant. And this is how we see it being translated here. In fact, uh, there's a sister passage in in the book of Acts to this one. Uh, It's very similar. It's in verse 32 of chapter 4. So flip the page over and we'll look at it again right here. This mirror passage in 432. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, everything communal. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Whoa, this is way more than, than Martha lending Mary her blow dryer. This is way more than, than Bartholomew lending his bicycle to, to Peter. This is huge. They are taking their, their houses, they are taking their fields, and they are liquidating them so that those who are less fortunate in their community might survive. This is a big deal. This is really, really strange. What is causing them to do it? Look in verse 32 again. Uh, Luke says, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. The emphasis here is that there's thousands of people in the Jesus movement at, at this time, but they're of one heart and soul. A single drive, a single ambition. When, when someone mourns, everybody mourns along with them. When someone is glad, everyone rejoices along with them. Luke is showing us that there's thousands of people, but they're unified. They're unified together in one heart and one soul. This is, kind of, this is the essence of what we long for, this unity, this unity. Luke uses a different phrase for that back in our passage in chapter two. In verse 44, he says, and all who believed were together. All who believed were together. Now, this isn't the normal word for together. In fact, there's a huge debate over like what this means, but the general consensus there's three small words that Luke crams together to, to form this phrase that's translated together. And generally people think that he's saying something along the lines of they were with each other in the same sense that you get when you look at somebody and you say, hey, I'm with you. I'm with you. These believers, these 3,000 believers were looking at each other and they were saying, I'm with you. You ever had someone look at you and say that? I'm with you. It's like the best feeling ever, right? Maybe you just shared like a difficulty that you have, that you're going through or that's coming up on the horizon and they, they put their arms around you and they say, I'm, I'm with you. No matter where this is going, I'm gonna be there with you. What's mine is yours. I'm gonna give you my emotional energy. If you need anything from me, I'll give it to you because I'm, I'm with you. I, I don't know how the, what the outcome of this is gonna be, but I'm with you. I'm with you. This is something that we all long to have said to us. I'm with you. I just moved here about a year ago uh, from the sunny land of Denver, and now we're in uh, Seattle. And um, moved here a year ago, and often I get asked this question by people who are native Seattleites. Is the Seattle freeze real? To which I respond, Absolutely, it's real. <laughs> um, and the, the way that you can test this is go onto the bus and try to have a conversation with someone in the morning commute, right? Who, who, who takes the bus in the morning commute? Many people. You don't talk to anybody on the bus, right? No, you do not talk to anybody on the bus. If you talk to someone on the bus, that person will take offense. Everybody else is gonna look at you, they're gonna scowl at you, okay? The general consensus is, hey, we're all crammed in here like sardines anyways. I'm with you right now, but I can't, can't wait till I'm not, right? But 
<laughs> and I think this is a, a great attitude that the greater city of Seattle has. Um, I was actually looking through uh, some, some studies that have been done on, on how cities are connected this week. One of them was really interesting. Um, it said out of 50 cities um, of similar size to Seattle, 50 cities of similar size to Seattle, we rank 48th, that's near the very bottom, of, of uh, cities that are likely to engage activities such as talking to your neighbor. 48th. We're a city that is not very connected. But this picture of true and meaningful friendship of I'm with you is something that we observe here. We all want it. I think everybody in this city really wants to experience true, true friendship. But we ironically live in a city where we want this, but we're also full of a bunch of people that are hiding from other people. All right. <laughs> uh, we're full of people who are hiding from other people. Okay? Um, here's where I'm going with this. But this, uh, this stuff here that we see are very public acts of love. Selling houses, selling fields, and redistributing them, that, those, those would have been in the, happening in the public sphere. And here's what's great about the Seattle freeze. You probably have never heard that sentence. Here's what's great about the Seattle freeze. We don't waste time on um, superficial relationships. We don't. We flake out on those, right? We do. We're like, you know what? That thing's not real. I'm going to just tell them I'm not going to be there. I'm like, we, we've had, we had lots of friends that live in Seattle. We moved here. We're not friends with them, really. They flake out on us. <laughs> we flake out on anything that we perceive as that will be superficial. So when people of Seattle look and see people getting together, people engaging in significant relationships, they're intrigued. They're intrigued. Because our culture says, you know what, that's not fake. People don't fake it here in Seattle. We do not fake relationship here in Seattle. I see that public act of love over there, and I'm intrigued by it. I'm intrigued by it. And look how Luke ends this passage. The people of the first century were intrigued by it as well. He says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It's incredibly attractive. Incredibly attractive. Loving the commune uh, has gained a priority in these people's lives. They're selling their possessions. At, At some point, they have reordered what is valuable in their life. You see that? They're selling their fields. They're selling their homes. They have determined that the kingdom of God is more valuable than their things, and so they're liquidating their things so that they can support the community of God as it takes the kingdom of God into the world. This is incredible, and if you're anything like me, um, this is challenging, right? I mean, the, I mean, they, it just comes out like, hey, how, how, are, are, how are you sacrificing for the community? And I don't want you to, to feel right now, hey, we need, we need to go out and do that. We need more foundation before we do that. And so that's why we're asking this next question of, what the heck is driving this? 
What's going on here? What's producing this? What's encouraging it? What's even compelling it? Because it seems so natural to these people. But if, if I'm honest with myself, I bristle at the thought of losing some of my things. I love my bicycle. I love it. All right, so that's what we're going to, to do. And be, but before we look at what, what produced it, I want to look at something that Jesus said because he hoped that his community would love each other like this so that it would be a witness to the world as well. Um, it's in John chapter 17, and it, it goes like this. He, he's in a long prayer at this point. He just got done praying for his disciples, and now he's gonna pray for a new group. That's you and me and these 3,000 new Christians. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, one heart and soul, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe, that's witness, that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, and just in case you miss it the first time, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So this is the whole point, Jesus says, of the community. Uh, For it to be a perfect, beautiful witness of his love for them, of his love in the Godhead, so that the world can see it and be attracted to it. Okay, so let's ask what's actually empowering it now, okay? Let's ask what's empowering it. Um, In short, the gospel is the engine that's driving this. The gospel of Jesus is the engine that is driving this. And so we're gonna talk about a couple parts of the gospel of Jesus that's driving this. Um, First, it's clear from Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter two um, that a doctrine of sin, a teaching on sin, was a big part of this gospel message. Uh, Peter looked at uh, the group of Pentecost, the crowds of Pentecost, and he said, you guys are sinners. You guys are rebelling against God. He even said this, you guys crucified Jesus. Several of them who weren't even there, you guys crucified Jesus. And he would say the same thing to us today. The church has said the same thing to all of the believers of God throughout history, that we have crucified Jesus, that we are likewise sinners. What does that that mean? That, 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 That means that given the chance, often in our lives, we would take the opportunity to kill God rather than obey God. That we would want to go our own way instead of submit to his way and rule for our life. And that, that, that can be hard to hear. That can be hard to stomach. Um, so we can say it a different way. God created all of this creation and then he gave it over to humanity so that humanity would fashion it and mold it to turn glory back to God as the great and perfect creator. And instead what we've done with his perfect will and desire for creation is we've molded it uh, to glorify ourselves. We've molded it to... Um, bring ourselves glory and ourselves pleasure and ourselves experiences. And in that way, we rebel against God. We, we cast off his rule. Sin, in, the, in its most basic sense, is our quest for independence from God to live how we want to live. And so this is a big aspect of the gospel, that 
humanity is in rebellion against God, living how they want to live, hoping that um, they can be independent. And what's what's really interesting here is, well, actually, they throw off the power of God over them, thinking that we've instated ourselves, but really what is over us is the power of sin. And the power of sin leads us to more and more rebellion of how God would order his creation, and it's actually not satisfying. It actually leaves us with a huge hole. We can continue to grab more and more in our own independence, but don't experience any life from it. So that's bad news. And then it gets a little bit worse because Jesus shows up on the scene and he says the kingdom of God is at hand. This is his stump speech that he goes from town to town in the Israeli countryside for three years saying. He says the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it's really close. It's coming. And kingdom carried connotations with it that we really can't understand in a democracy today because uh, in a democracy with our leaders, with our sovereigns, we don't have to get on board with their policies, right? And even when one sovereign changes to another, we don't have to get on board and change to their policies. But in the first century, when a king or a queen, a sovereign, instated themselves in a land, you submitted to all of their policies, how they wanted that, their kingdom to operate and how they wanted it to run. And Jesus likens God to a king that's coming with new policies. The bad news is that all of humanity is in rebellion to that. The kingdom of God is at hand. But here's what's really fascinating The king doesn't enter into reality with a scepter in hand. He doesn't enter uh, with his armies uh, coming before him to, to force his subjects into obedience, to drive out those who would rebel. No, he shows up in Jesus as a baby born among fur and feces. This is crazy, vulnerable. There's no more vulnerable picture that you get as a a child. There's just lots of stuff going on in here today, guys. Lots of lights changing. Um, But he shows up incredibly vulnerable. He he gets older, starts his ministry where he's going to start inaugurating his kingdom in the world, and do you know what he does? He heals children. He feeds crowds of hungry people. He forgives people of their sin. This is a very, very interesting king, isn't it? To those who would put their faith in him, he calls them his friends. He calls them his brothers, his sisters. And then he looks at them and he says, that rebellion against God that you have in your hearts, I'm gonna take that from you. Here we have a king who comes to earth and he desires to be communal with us. He says he's going to take our sin on his shoulders. He's going to take our sin, he's going to take it to the cross and pay, take the full responsibility and penalty for it. He's going to live in commune with us, taking our sin, but there's more. Then he also says, I'm going to extend to you my life. The perfection that I brought from heaven that I executed here on earth, I'm going to give that to you. So here the king of heaven comes down 
and he says, I am going to live in commune with you. I'm gonna take your sin, I'm gonna share my life, and this is what's fueling these 3,000 believers. Once that happens, this is what they were preaching each and every day, once that happens, this commune king coming down to share all things, they can't help but look side to side and do it for each other. God has all things in common with us. How little is it for us to have common things in common with each other is the response. That's what's fueling this. And then there's even more. Jesus comes and says, I'm gonna send my spirit to you. And this is what happens in Pentecost and and to everybody who puts their faith in Jesus, God pours out his Holy Spirit within them to be that voice that whenever they need it, whenever they even ask for it, they may not even need it, but whenever they ask for it, to be that voice that whispers in your ear, I'm with you. I'm with you. I know what you're going through right now, and I'm with you. I know what the outcome's gonna be, you don't, and I'm gonna go there all the way to the end with you. The Holy Spirit, his, his, Jesus always calls, also calls him the comforter. He's gonna comfort us. God dwells within us. You see, we learn that God is a fellowshipping God. He's a communal God with his people. Why? Because he's a God of grace. The doctrine of grace goes very simply like this. The teaching of grace, doctrine and teaching, the same word. Bad people getting good things. God communes with us. He gives bad people good things. His life, his spirit. There's one more thing uh, that the early church noticed that he gives us that that highlights how he's a fellowshipping God. It's in Ephesians chapter two. We're gonna throw it on the screen here. Ephesians chapter two. Um, Perfect. This is the apostle Paul This is just something they started noticing, and so he started writing about it to the church in Ephesus. He says, for through him, that's Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is where it gets interesting. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The picture here is that Christians are bricks. They're bricks. And there's a foundation of the teaching of the the prophets and the apostles, that's the teaching of Jesus. And Christians are placed as bricks on top of this foundation. But what's being built? A temple for who? For the Lord. And that's why we do Sundays, that's why we do fellowship groups, because when Christians come together, we have temples being built that God himself communes in more powerful ways, and we experience his love in overwhelming measures, incredible ways we're being built as bricks into a house where God himself dwells. God is a fellowshipping God. That is what is sourcing. That's what's driving this movement of a fellowshipping community. All right? So this is pretty incredible. This is what's reorienting their value, their, their whole value system. This is why they're liquidating their goods and giving it to each other because they have encountered a fellowshipping God which is causing them to fellowship. 
Now, I don't want you to leave today and just think, you know what, I just need to work harder on fellowshipping with people because um, we have seen this beautiful thing, we've seen the gospel that fuels it, but we actually need to know how to work with the gospel in order to participate with it, okay? Um, I, I just moved to a new house, me and my wife did. It's a great house, just a couple blocks from here. We moved to a new house, and after moving, you're really sweaty, right? I was really sweaty and really stinky. I sensed my need for a shower, okay? Shower is a metaphor for the gospel, okay? I sensed my need for the shower. I had a shower in my house. Great news, I was looking at the shower. I had a need for a shower, I had something that could fix it, my shower. I got in the shower and realized I did not know how to operate these knobs. For some reason, every single shower is different, you know? I, I don't think they make the same set of knobs. I think they always make different ones. I've never have in my life encountered the same set of knobs in a shower. And, and what I needed to do was to learn how to adjust these knobs so I didn't scald or freeze myself, right? And this is what we need to, to really think about together as a community because when it comes to loving the community through the power of the gospel, we need to know how to adjust the knobs so we don't scald or freeze each other, right? Because if we're honest, maybe you've been thinking of this as we've been talking today. There's some pretty, um, there's some poor examples uh, in recent church history and even in distant past church history where these knobs were used incredibly wrong and people were burned, Okay, and so what we need to do is we really need to figure out how we can participate with the gospel, okay? And it goes like this. What we need to do with the gospel is we need to repent and believe the gospel. What do I mean by that? Um, well, let's start with believe the gospel. When we believe uh, the gospel, what, what we say when we say we believe the gospel is we press into an increasing awareness. We seek to increase our awareness of how great God is, how holy he is, how magnificent he is, how perfect he is. We, we seek to increase our awareness of who God is. Okay, how can we do that? Well, here in, in uh, chapter two, it says that, that people had awe for God, and that's tied to the apostles' preaching. Often preaching will point to how you can uh, fully grasp, more completely grasp the greatness of God. Other ways you can do this is by going out in nature, stopping, experiencing it. You see the, we see the greatness of God in nature everywhere if we just look up and allow ourselves to ask that question, how is God being displayed right now? Go to the mountains and do that. Do that on your ski trips, do that on your hikes. This is how we can increase our awareness of God. This is, what we, this is the first part of believing the gospel. The other part of believing the gospel is increasing our awareness of our own sin and our own depravity. This doesn't sound very attractive, you know? Um, this doesn't sound very fun. Um, but what really happens throughout the Christian life is we learn more and more about ourselves. We learn more and more about uh, the parts of us, we, what we could call the old self, is what uh, the Apostle Paul calls this, the old self that, that seeks to still live independent from God. The way that we can do that is, is by confessing our sins regularly to God. We, that way we grow in awareness of our sins. Um, and, and when we do that, when we grow in our awareness of God's greatness, we grow in our awareness of our own sin, 
what happens is we see a fellowshipping God as being greater and greater and greater because the gap gets bigger and bigger and bigger. The more we do that, the more we experience the love of God. And so believing the gospel means we believe those things, we press into those things frequently so that we can experience a greater and greater love of God. And it's from that source, just like the the first church here, that we love one another. That's how believing the gospel works when it comes to loving the community. The second thing we do is we have to repent, okay? Um, This is a, a... Probably another Christian lingo word, what it really means is we change our mind about what's good in life, okay? We change our mind about what to pursue in life. And what's great is Luke gives us an example, a tool, um, here in Acts chapter five, right after that sister passage we looked at. He gives us a tool that helps us process repentance a little bit. I'm not gonna read it, I'm just gonna summarize it for you. Okay, so in this whole hoopla, of people uh, selling their homes, selling their fields, and redistributing that wealth. In all of this activity, there's a married couple named Ananias and Sapphira. They too decide to sell their field, okay? They sell their field, they get the money, they wanna keep some of it, and then they take the rest to the, to the, to the apostles, to Peter, and they say, and Actually, Ananias does this. He takes it to Peter and he says, this is the money we got from the sale of our field. This is all the money. He lied. Just a little lie, right? But what it really uncovers in his heart is that he wanted some of the money, which is fine, um, but he also wanted favor within the community. He also wanted to promote this image of generosity as being tied to him in the community. And Peter sniffs it out. He sniffed it out. I'm not sure if it's, but we, don't, we really don't know how he sniffed it out. Maybe the Holy Spirit told him. Maybe someone else told him about the, the sale of the land. Maybe he's just like, he's kind of a part-time broker on the side. He just knows how to assess a field. I don't know. But he sniffs it out. He called him out. And he says, why are you lying to us right now? Ananias falls over dead. The subtext here is that God has killed him. A couple hours later, they call his wife in. She doesn't know that this has happened. And they ask her, hey, did you sell the land for this much? And, and she says, yep, that, that, that much. She lies too. She falls over dead. You see, this is a big deal. We can't come into the community and, and use generosity in order to promote our own image, whether it be through the actions we do or the gifts that we give. This is a big deal to God. We can't come into community and fake generosity. Use generosity to serve ourselves. That's the first thing we need to repent of. The second thing we need to uh, repent of is is the, the tendency, the temptation to use generosity, physical gifts, gifts of money, in order to keep everybody at arm's length. In order to check that box, yep, I have fulfilled my commitment to the Christian community, I've given my gift, and now I don't have to look at my Christian brother or sister and say, I'm with you. Because that brings messes, right? That's hard. We have a tendency to be generous financially so we don't have to be generous with our very selves. And so we have to repent of that attitude. Fellowship 
means giving ourselves, just like Jesus came to earth and gave his very self on the cross, all right? So that's the second thing we need to repent of. The third thing that we need to repent of is we could be tempted to use generosity to gain power and gain influence within the believing community. This is like the first one, but it's a little bit different. Sometimes we can use our gifts or even our, our acts of sacrifice and, and use that uh, and assume that this gives us great status within the community, assume that it gives us maybe even a seat at the table or power over other people to convince them to do what needs to get done. This is the third thing we need to repent of. This is not how generosity works, okay? And so these three things, we're actually, uh, our first song as the band gets up here is gonna be a song of repentance. It's not a normal song uh, that we usually sing about worshiping God here. It's actually a song to help us um, help us uh, have an attitude of repentance before God. And, and so I would encourage you to press into that song in that way. It's a song of repentance and, and some of the ways that we just talked about here. And, and so that's what that song's all about. It's, an, it's a newer song for us. It may feel a little bit weird for you, but I would encourage you to humbly press into that and say, you know what? I am tempted in these ways to, be, to, to uh, alter my generosity to serve myself instead of God and his church, okay? So, commune, fellowship, sourced in the gospel as seen in Jesus, comes to us and empowers us to love one another so that the world may know that Jesus is king. It's heavy on the witness. And I wish we had time to go into how the whole story of Israel is a testament to this reality, that God set up Israel and created social institutions of love, of justice, and mercy so that the nations that were surrounding Israel would look over and say, whoa, how happy those people are because of these systems that they've created. It actually happened during the reign of uh, David and Solomon. The other nations came and visited and they said, how happy your people are. This is amazing. Truly the God of Israel is Lord. Whoa. I wish we had time to go more into Jesus's um, last conversation with all of his disciples where he emphasizes love for each other so, so heavily. I wish we could roll our sleeves up and get into the book of Colossians and look at how Paul says, your guys' love for each other over there in Colossae, that is radical and it's public and it's sourced directly from the hope in the gospel and it's a huge testimony to the fact that Christ is in you. I wish we could go to the book of Revelation where the faithful church gets this moniker, the church of brotherly love. This emphasis is throughout scripture. It's one of the greatest witnesses that God has intended to show the world so that people might believe in him. And so I hope that that we can begin to navigate these knobs of the gospel so that we may love each other well, so that we can witness to this incredible fellowship in God who's taken everything in commune with us. Let's pray. Father, I, I'm so humbled by the fact that, that you would come to us and, and you would look upon us and desire to fellowship with those of us, all of us, who have been rebellious to you and your word and your desire for what this 
created order could look like. I thank you for my friends and how you brought them to hear your word preached today. We ask that you would send your spirit in abundance so that we might be filled with your love, uh, filled with a new, fresh realization of your fellowshipping nature, filled with your grace. We as bad people have received great things from you so that we may pour it out on one another. God, we, we pray that, that your city might see our love. We, say, we pray that you might inspire incredible, radical acts of public love that couldn't help but go noticed in this city. We thank you for your son, for your spirit, and for you, Father, this beautiful commune in yourself that you share with humanity. Pray all, all of this by that same trinity. Amen. Amen.